so thankful for all the students who've been involved in the worship service today. I don't know if you could tell which ones were the students and which one were not. I'm one of the nots, just in case you're wondering. Uh, there's not going to be any fighting in heaven. Uh, when, when God rules, we're just not going to be doing that. And so Jesus essentially says to us, when we enter into his rule and give our lives to him, we should do everything we can to stop the fighting now. Might as well get ready for heaven. Or if I can put it in the way that I wrote it out, passive acceptance of unreconciled relationships is not an option for a follower of Jesus. Any, anybody agree with that? Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. I was riding on the metro there early one morning. Two men got on to the train. They were screaming at one another. Uh, the older man dressed well. I think they were attorneys helping you know, to bring peace to others. Uh, the older man was just screaming at the younger man and saying, I can't believe you made such a stupid decision. I can't believe that you graduated from my alma mater from Georgetown. And he was swearing. He was swearing a lot too. The younger man wasn't passive either. He was saying, you know, I'm just doing what I've seen you do. And that made the other one even angrier. And it got louder and louder. Three train stops. Three, three, they went at one another. And this was a crowded, you know, Washington, D.C. Uh, car. And all of us were sort of stunned into silence. And when they uh, got off the train after the third stop, it was a lot quieter. And, and almost all of us looked at one. It sort of bound us together <laughs> as we looked at that. And, and I thought, that's not the way heaven's going to be. That's not the way God made for us to live. I, I doubt that either one of those men got up in the morning and said, I wonder how loud I can scream today. I wonder how much uh, hatred I can spew out today. Very few people do that. Uh, God tells us we've been made for good relationships. Genesis 2, we've been created for good relationships with him and with one another. But when we walked away from God, it just messed everything up. But when the rule of God comes back in, um, we're not going to have fighting. Je Jesus, that's what I think he's getting at as we come to that text that Mason read for us today. And if you have a Bible, turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 28. He's talking about, with his coming, the promised rule of God, kingdom of God, or as Matthew would put it, the kingdom of heaven, is beginning. And he, he goes to the, poet, the, the prophet that Jesus quotes the most. Uh, that's Isaiah. And he says, look, in Isaiah 61, what it's going to be like. And in another part of Isaiah's writing, let me just show it to you, it's so beautiful. When... God's kingdom is complete. When we stand in front of him, this is what we read in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with a goat. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Parents, can you believe it? For they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't you long for it? Isn't, isn't it beautiful? 
And that's what the sermon is about today. It should start right here among us, and it's going to happen. Uh, when Jesus came, he said, I, I've come to, into this world where you have all these broken relationships, and I've come to make peace. My, my peace, my shalom, I have come to give to you. It begins with peace with God, but it, it's supposed to move out from us. We're to be salt and light in the world. It's supposed to move out from us as we become, as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 5, those who are the bearers of the message of God's peace and reconciliation and the ministry to bring it about. So not only does God give us peace with Him, but also He takes us as imperfect people and sends us out to make peace among others. And that's why just passive acceptance of unbroken or, or, or broken relationships is not an option for a follower of Jesus. And that brings us to Jesus in Matthew 5.21 when he tells us where it starts that we're just not going to harm one another ever as far as it's in our control as he takes us to the sixth command which just in its smallest way is you shall not murder. All right, now we've got to, you've got to be with me here. Before I can look at that specifically I, I need to tell you how Jesus is talking about his father's commands. Um, beginning with 5.21 Jesus takes us to the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the first one is, the sixth one, you shall not murder. And he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And some people say, well, what's Jesus doing there? Is he correcting the Ten Commandments? Well, I tell you, he's not correcting the Ten Commandments. He's not saying, well, you know, my father's commandments were too soft on you. I'm going to make them harder. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, over the many, many years, people have misunderstood these things. And, and, and when, he, when he simply is teaching what, what the Old Testament says, what his father had said, he would say, it is written. But when he knows that a correction needs to happen, he will say, you have heard it said, but let me tell you what God was really getting at. Because, you know, the Ten Commandments were given not to ruin our lives. Remember about four years ago, I did a series of messages about that. And after giving these commands, he says, I've given you commands so that it may go, anybody remember, it may go well with you 13 of you do remember God gave us the commands so that you and I would know how to live and if we could keep them perfectly we would experience the peace of God but nobody does and so we don't usually experience it and so we have all these broken relationships and he says I'm gonna bring us back to what my father really meant when he gave these ten commandments and now I'm gonna give myself to you so that I can forgive you of where you've broken them and begin to remake you into people who are not people who bring about division, but are peacemakers, because blessed are the peacemakers. Now, how were these religious teachers messing it up so that Jesus had to correct them? Well, a number of ways. I'll just tell you a couple. They would look in the commandments, and in any place they could find any permission in the Old Testament, they would use that as an opportunity to make it as broad as possible. In other words, um, if, if they saw that the uh, commands of the Old Testament called us to be faithful in our marriage relationships, and they could find any exception to that, then they broadened that to say, well, that means we can put away our wives for any and every reason, because only men could put women away in the first century. Just need to mark that down. And they were doing it, breaking their marriage vows over and over again and saying, we're just fine. On the other side, if there was a prohibition in the command that they didn't like, they interpreted it as narrowly as possible. 
which we're going to be seeing next week in the seventh command, when they said, saw, do not commit adultery, they said, well, that can only possibly be referring to the specific act of engaging in sexual activity with somebody already married. And that left them free to do anything else that they wanted. Kind of sounds like 21st century Southern California, doesn't it? What Jesus gets back to, he says, let me tell you why the commands were given. It's so that we can think and speak and live in the way that God created us to think and speak and live. The, the commands, do you remember, when, when, when people asked Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commands? He boiled it down and he said, well, the, the first and the greatest command is, love God with all of your being. That's the first half of the Ten Commandments, the first five. And the second, he would say, is very much like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a summary of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? So today we're going to look at where loving your neighbor as yourself begins. It's that sixth command. We will never do harm to them. You shall not murder. Or the way that I have put it, we will treat people made in the image of God the way that God treats people. That's what we're going to do. See, uh, look at this. Verse 21. When Jesus takes up the way that these teachers of the law were, were communicating that, he said, look at what they said. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder and, notice this, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's kind of a slick trick. They took the sixth command and put it together with another phrase or, of legislation that you have in, in their laws and they put them together, but in doing so, they made the real command mean much, much less than it actually originally meant. What they did was first, they said, well, that, that command must only refer to the physical act of homicide. So, I mean, if I've never put a knife in somebody's heart, I've never broken that command. And so they would say, well, uh, I'm no Hitler. I'm no Bin Laden. I'm no John Wayne Gacy. I'm fine. And they would feel like they, they didn't need God's grace. They didn't need God's salvation. They, they would pretend that they were self-righteous. And then they would say, really, God doesn't care about other things that we do because the only thing that's punishable is that specific act of homicide. And Jesus comes back and says, no, no, no. Do you see how that way of looking at it affected their lives? They could say, well, my life's just fine with God because I've never done any of those things. Then they could go out and uh, hate Gentiles, constantly insult women, which they did. They could ignore the children in their midst. They could rip down somebody's character and reputation and still say, I'm fine with God. I haven't broken His command. I don't need His mercy or His grace. Now today we're going to be having some baptisms. And do you remember last week we had that wonderful video of the last baptisms we had? And Angela Lowe Moser talked about this. And I just, when I heard it, I thought, aha, I've got to get that for this week's sermon. So I put it here in front of you. Angela, I don't know if you're here, but I'll quote you. She said, I finally understood that we're all sinful. And that it was only pride and an illusion that my own personal goodness relinquishes the need for Jesus' salvation. You see, what, what Angela finally understood 
is what these teachers of the law needed to understand. That we all need the grace and rescue of God. And, and Jesus wants us to know that in the sixth command, telling us how we are to love our neighbor, God had something much more beautiful in mind than just restricting homicide. He wants us to know how we can build positive relationships and never do harm to people. And then he goes on to let us know that there is more than one way to harm somebody made in God's image. We know this, don't we? So he takes up three ways. Look at verse 22. I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Number two. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to judgment even by our own courts, by the Sanhedrin. But anybody who says, you fool, will be subject to the punishment of hell. So let's just look at what Jesus wants us to do. How do we harm people? The kind of things that none of us who follow Jesus would ever want to do. He says it begins with poisonous inner thoughts. That's where it begins. Nursing anger. That's the way I put it. Uh, Jesus starts in verse 22, the very place he always starts, inside of us. He says what happens inside of us is always going to flow from the inside to the outside. And he says we're not going to be nursing anger in our heart. And, and once again, you've got to listen to me. He's not saying that we will, when we follow him, we will never feel anger. I'm telling you, if you are human and you're not mineral or whatever else, you're going to feel anger. Anybody want to give me an amen? No, maybe not. Maybe you only think about your spouse or your parents or something. I, I don't know. But, but he's not talking about that because God himself, in whose image we're made, often feels anger. And the Bible tells from the beginning to the end about those things that God is angry about. The wrath of God comes against. What, is it, what it comes against is the, the impact that, that sin has in the world. And he becomes also, when a person engages in it and continues to engage in it, he becomes angry with that as well. And then, and then there's this place where Jesus becomes angry also several places, but one of the places that's just so gripping to me is John chapter 11. Jesus loving his friend Lazarus, and then Lazarus dies and he comes up there to the grave and he sees what death does to people. Those of you who have lost someone recently, you know that there's just something that you say, that's not the way God must have meant this to be. Don't you feel that? When Jesus stood there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and saw the impact that that had on the family, the strongest word in Jesus' language was used for the inner frustration and anger that he felt about the, the death that had come into this world, that human beings made in the image of God were not meant to die. And it was the sin that we engaged in that, that brought death into this world. The word that it's used is for when a, a, person, a horse is riding along a path, and then something darts across that path that's not supposed to be there. And the, the horse snorts and rises up, saying, that's not supposed to be in my path. That's the word that is used when Jesus saw death in this world that he had made. See, Jesus himself became angry about the effects of sin in our world. But you, there's a huge difference between being angry about sin and people who engage in sin and the effects of sin and the kind of anger that wants to do harm 
to the person who's engaging in it. Do you, you see the big difference that is there? There's a rightful place for anger. And the second is what Jesus is dealing with. The very tense that he uses really is that we don't take time to just let that fester in our lives where we brood upon that thing negatively. You know what I'm talking about? Where somebody does something and it really makes us mad. And we just cannot put it to the side. The Apostle Paul would say that when we follow Jesus, we never keep a record of wrongs. But some of us do, don't we? Ever been in a battle? I remember 15 years ago when you did that. You haven't changed at all. It's that thought and brooding. The, the illustration that came to my mind is of an acorn and an oak tree. Do you know you see those big oaks that are there? And you, then you pick up the little acorn that might be alongside of it. And you know that that little acorn is what led to that tree. And that all that is in that tree was already resident in that acorn. Do you see that? And so what Jesus is saying is that inner thought of anger and hatred brooding in our inner beings is the acorn that leads to that oak tree. So, so that when we see a person engaging in homicide, we are never self-righteous saying, I could never do that. When we see this kind of hatred and anger in ourselves, we know we need mercy and grace as much as anybody else. We are poor in spirit, as Jesus would say. So Jesus says, be sure to investigate your inner life. And today, at the very end, I'm going to ask us to do that. To make sure that where there are some of those residues of anger and hatred that we have never fully given to him, that we will give it fully to him today. Because Jesus said that leads to some specific things. And the second thing he takes on is that that will lead us to treat people as non-persons. That's what he means when he says, don't say raka. As Mason read, did you wonder, what on earth is he talking about there? I've never said raka. <laughs> well, the word raka really means just looking at somebody and saying you're a nobody. Yeah, you, you don't really matter. And what Jesus is getting at is that people who cross our paths, every person who crosses our paths is made in the image of God. Every person who crosses our paths and sits here in the worship center is a person that God loves so much that he gave his life for us. He said, but you know you can get into a place where there are only certain people that you really value as people. People often like ourselves. And there can be people in our vicinity, even people who show up in our church, and we don't even notice that they're there. What, what makes it so that we don't notice people or we, we're just indifferent toward people? It can be many things. It, it can be appearance, amount of money that people have, the religious leaders would often just ignore the children in their midst or the disabled. And the men ignored the women. They treated them as nothing. Jesus says that that kind of indifference, not seeing the value of each one, is what leads to mistreatment. Doesn't that make sense to you? That's what Jesus is saying. After all, if we think of them as raka, as nobodies, what does it matter how we treat them? So I think Jesus would say, if, when we're reading this, is there somebody, some kind of person that you have a tendency to ignore? Why would that be? An intern at work? A particular kind of disablement? See, here, the first he began by investigating our heart. Here he's investigating our eyes, isn't he? 
How do we see people? And the follower of Jesus sees everyone as valuable, made in the image of God. Which Jesus moves on then. The third way that we can harm people that he takes up, going on the attack with our words and eventually our deeds. And that's what he means by you fool. And the word that Jesus uses is our word for moron. What what Jesus is taking up is when we use our words to attack the self-worth of another person. It's not just indifference about a person, but it's actually using our word to rip at their inner beings. It it murders their hearts. Um, It does damage sometimes much greater than even the knife. We call it verbal abuse. Jesus called it the same thing here. So you know, children will sometimes chant, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. If you hear a child saying that out in the kindergarten, go run over there and take to the side and say, no, 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 you're wrong about that. You're not going to do that, are you? Because by the time we've lived as long as most of us have, we know that long after the uh, physical wounds that we have had created by sticks have healed, The inner wounds created by words have not healed. It's happened to all of us. And what Jesus is saying is when it's happened to you, and then you come to Jesus, and you know that he is there to make peace, then you never want this to happen through you. Uh, Solomon would write in Proverbs 18, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Same, Same tongue can have the power of calling a person to God or making them so angry it sends them away from God, of bringing them great, great encouragement or absolutely destroying their self-esteem so that they think they are not worth anything. And I'll tell you, I'll just be frank with you. This is a scary part of the sermon for me because I use so many words. Haven't you noticed that? It's part of being a preacher. I just use so many words. One of my prayers is Psalm 141.3. All the time. God, as I go out there today, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Set a guard over my mouth. Set a watch over these lips that whatever I say will do no harm but bring your blessing to others. You see, um, Jesus says those attitudes of the heart and the words that we speak can do destruction just as much as our physical activity. And when you bring it all the way back to those Ten Commandments, if they are telling us how we love our neighbor as ourselves, then bottom line, what Jesus is saying is, lovelessness destroys people. That's really what he's saying. It's lovelessness that destroys people because it is love that will bring the blessing of God. So that that angry feeling we have in our hearts, that sense of indifference about people around us, or even the the angry words spoken, may not be something we can judge in our public courtrooms. But we who follow Jesus know that there is somebody else that we're going to have to stand in front of, right? And that is the one who loves us so much that he sent his son, who died so that we can be at peace with him. That while we were sinners... He died for us to bring us to God. And now he sends us out as his messengers of peace. Now my time goes so quickly, but let me just tell you, Jesus not only gave this principle like I've done now, he applied the command 
He could have applied it in a thousand different ways, but I think he must have felt the way I do. I don't have time. You wouldn't stay me to hear me apply it in a thousand different ways. So he applied it in two ways. So I'll show you what they are. Verses 23 and 24. He says, first of all, basically, obedience, obedience to words like this in this command is central to worshiping God. Do you remember what I, how I defined worship? Putting God in his rightful place. All through the week, we go away, you know, and we put ourselves at the center. We do what we want to do. Or we put other things. We want to please other people. But we come back to church and we realize that God alone is God. God first. That's where it starts. So in worshiping God, we say, all right, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. So he says, okay, you're coming to worship. And he envisions a time when you're coming with a gift to the altar. So he would be saying, all right, uh, you've come into Lake Avenue Church. And, and you're going to be sometimes having communion with people. And you're realizing that the death of Jesus, you needed it as much as they do, but you realize that you are angry with them or they with you. If you're going to worship me, you can't let that stay where it was. You, you've got to make sure you do something about it. If you are worshiping and you open up this word and God, the one who's the center of your life, tells you you can't have an unreconciled relationship. And you know of one. You see what he says. Stop pretending externally that you're worshiping. Go and get that right and then come back and really worship. I've been looking to see how many people were leaving today in the, in the light of that. I'm expecting you to come back. I'm expecting you to come back because that's what we have to do. That's why I said what Jesus is getting at here is passive acceptance of an unreconciled relationship is not an option when we follow Jesus. So examine your heart and, and your life. Sometimes people won't let you be reconciled. It's, that's not in our control. But as far as we can do something, we have to take the initiative. Here, Jesus envisions us stopping and realizing that somebody has something against us. In Matthew 18, he'll flip it over and say, sometimes you're going to realize that you have something against them. Either way, when we follow Jesus, we take the first step. And why? Because Jesus took the first step. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, do it with urgency, where you know there is a broken relationship. Say, God, help me. I've tried before, but I will go with your presence and with your power. Use me to be a peacemaker. That's how Jesus applies this. May we hear his word. And then the second way he applies it, verses 25 and 26, is just such a common, a piece of common advice. He said that a way of life that lives this way, that always seeks peace, is going to simply be a healthier way of life. It's going to be a happier way of life. Look how, how he envisions it. He said, yeah, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. He's just giving us a you know, real-life example. Do it with him while you're on the way or you're going to have to hire one of the attorneys here at Lake Avenue Church. And they'll have to charge you whatever their firm says they have to charge you. you see? So do it with them while you're on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Deal with it now and life's going to be better. That's what he's getting at this thing. I'll tell you, if you just let that thing fester, uh, 
you will not get out till you paid the last penny. Uh, he, he's just getting at this thing, letting us know something that we do know. We sometimes think, if I just ignore this problem, it'll get better on its own. But it doesn't. Uh, the cancer that is there grows, and things don't get better. Uh, I was thinking about this several years ago, and this will show you, those of you who are basketball fans, um, I was a Chicago Bulls fan for so long living in Chicago, and we didn't like the uh, uh, Detroit Pistons. Should I not dislike the Detroit Pistons in the light of this text? We we always thought of them as dirty players. Uh, That's when Rodman was playing for the Pistons, and they had had some tough guys on there. And one of those Pistons, Rick Mahorn, who was really a tough guy, uh, became, and I think he still is, a television commentator. One day I was watching one of the games, and and, uh, a a guard named John Starks of the New York Knicks just engaged in a flagrant foul against Kenny Anderson, and he was hurt. They had to carry him off. And the horn, this commentator who was so often accused of dirty play himself, including by me, but anyway, said, he said, I learned a long time ago that that kind of dirty play comes back to you many times over. You should play clean now because in the end, if you don't, you'll get it much worse. Well, Jesus' words are a lot better than Rick Mahorn's. He's saying that when we have the tendency to want to lash out, do not do it. And when we know that there is a broken relationship, deal with it right, right now. And at the end of the day, it will be so much better. So when we're standing before God, will there be unpaid bills that we didn't deal with immediately? Will there be careless words spoken that we didn't go back and make that right immediately? Jesus is calling us to be so alert to our actions that our way of life and our perspective of life is that we will seek to be peacemakers. Now, I want to close with just a couple of pieces of uh, pastoral advice. Um, The first thing I want to say is that if we're going to be peacemakers instead of people with broken relationships, I think the foundational issue, as Jesus always says, is our inner lives. To be a peacemaker really starts with verses 3 through 9, the Beatitudes. Um, If we're not poor in spirit, so that if we think, I'm better than that person, that person has done a lot worse things than I have, if we don't realize our desperate need of the grace of God, we're not going to be a peacemaker because usually broken relationships happen because of pride. We feel wounded, we feel like we're not as bad as them, it's all their fault. And so really it begins, and the thing that I would encourage us to do in this series is to take out Matthew 5, 3 through 9, and keep reading it and praying that those inner qualities, which were the inner qualities of Jesus himself, will become more and more ours. Meekness, perhaps particularly with this one, that we will use whatever he gives us, not to do harm, but to bring blessing. The second piece of just pastoral advice is that I think the key to our inner lives is what we let ourselves think. Um, I talked about this in the book of Philippians. Do you remember that? That, that uh, the renewed lives that Jesus wants us to have, it begins by us bringing Jesus into our lives and then he washes our sins away. Then he gives himself to us so we can begin to live differently. But our role in this sanctification, this growing process, is what we put into our minds. So if we're always putting junk into our minds, 
if we're thinking and focusing our minds on, on things they did wrong to us and all these things that make us angry, we'll become angry people. Garbage in, garbage out. Do you ever get any emails or letters from people that the moment you get them, you just see the name pop up there and you know this is not going to be a happy email. I can tell you the person who is like that is always thinking negative thoughts. Just, we, just mark it down. So what kind of thoughts am I talking about? Um, Philippians 4, 8 to 9. Um, and I would encourage you to take these verses and, and put them on the bathroom mirror or on the refrigerator or anything that you look at all the time. And this is what the Bible says. So whatever is true, what's noble, what's right, what is pure, what's lovely, what is admirable, those things that are excellent and praiseworthy, that God would love. Think about those things. Put them into your mind. Paul would say, then you watch it. What you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And then the promise, the God of peace will be with you. He'll be a peacemaker. And then the third piece of pastoral advice is something you know. And the baptism, this is what you're going to be talking about. Uh, baptism. This beautiful life is only possible in Christ. The thing we're going to be seeing in Jesus' teaching for the rest of the time is that it's, so much of it's just good common sense, right? Just so much. But then sometimes we think, okay, I can do that on my own. But then we try to do it on our own and we can't. So verses 17 to 20 tell us that Jesus was the only one who ever came and fulfilled the law, lived it out. And he says, not one part of what is there is going to be broken. And one of those promises is that those who receive him, a servant would come, Isaiah 53, who would give us the opportunity to have our pasts forgiven. He would die in our place. And in Jeremiah, he would write his word on our hearts. He would give his spirit to us so that when we bring Jesus into our lives, then he gives us the power to begin living in a way that we wanted to live before but could not. He alone lived the life we should live, but we haven't. And then in our place, he died the death we should die, but now we don't have to. That's the good news. So it's in Christ. And I love that phrase. Jeff Leo has pointed out to us almost every Tuesday when I gather with pastors. He said the, the word, the phrase that is used most often for a follower of Jesus in the New Testament is we are in Christ. We're in the realm of his forgiveness. We'll stand before God and he'll say, uh, were you perfect enough to get to heaven no, but I'm in Christ. Look at him. We're in the realm of his sovereignty and of his power. And baptism really says, I am in Christ. I've died with him. I live with him. He is my Lord. Um, I baptized a man who was almost 90 years old years ago in, uh, in Chicago. Uh, he had been an atheist his whole life. Been a cantankerous old man. And uh, had given his life to Jesus. It was... A beautiful conversion, complete change. And he made sure that all the friends that he had angered over the many years uh, came. And I think if they'd all come, it would have been packed out. But, uh, and he was so old, he was kind of frail, different from all you guys, frail. And uh, I told him before, I said, you may not have to be able to climb up and get into this thing, and I'm willing to just sprinkle you. And he said, absolutely not. He said, I want everybody there to know that I belong to Jesus from head to toe, from head to toe. 
And so I just want to say the way to live this way, to be peacemakers, is to bring Jesus into your life. Then he transforms you into his salt and into his light. And he sends you into the world to bring his peace. I'll end with this phrase and then we'll go to our time of baptism. When we truly follow Jesus, our Lord Jesus knows of only one way to destroy our enemies. By thinking, speaking, and acting to make them our friends. Just as he did, while we were sinners, he died for our peace and he sends us as bearers of his peace. May we be to his glory. Amen. 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 Praise be to God. Now, Father, as we go to the rest of this service, may we sense your presence here among us.